This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Hey there, I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and it's a real pleasure and honor working alongside Diane on this podcast. She is a true pro, and she's one heck of a storyteller. And today, a terrific guest, a credit to the legal profession. Her name is Shannon McAuliffe. She's vice president of an innovative company called Ideas42. She formerly ran the ROCA program in Chelsea and Boston. We'll talk about that. And she's also a former public defender. In 2018, Shannon tossed her hat into the ring running for Suffolk County DA. We are thrilled to have her with us on the podcast. So, Diane, take it away. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Diane. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to see you. Likewise. Um, I just right out of the gate want to let you know, I know you and I have known each other for a long time, but we kind of lost contact. The last I saw of you, you were running for Suffolk County DA in 2018. Just so you know, I had your sign on my lawn and I did vote for you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But you know what? When I saw you up there in that panel, I'm like, this chick rocks. That is so gutsy and impressive. And I can't even believe you. I mean, I can believe you did it, but I am so impressed that you did that. You would have been a killer DA, FYI. Thank you. I mean, you know, my initial thought was to get Dan Conley out. Um, and so that's really why I got in. It's because I just thought we cannot have another four years of him. He'd been in He'd been in office for 16 years and he'd never been challenged. So that was really why I ended up doing it. Um, the day I got in, he got out and then a lot of other people jumped in. So it was, listen, it was an interesting race. It was like, you know, very like provocative. And we totally changed how people talked about, you know, criminal justice and all of that. So, you know, it was a, it was a good ride, but the DA that they have now, Rachel Rollins, has done some great things. And so, you know, that, that's that's what happened. You know, Shannon, when she was running, there was one overarching thing she kept saying, that she wasn't going to prosecute nonviolent crimes. And people were like, OMG, oh, my God. But you know what? There was a thing three days ago in the Boston Globe. I don't know if you saw that. I did. I did. It's a, It was so it is this you know results of a years long study. Um, that went back to actually Connolly's days. So just saying that when you don't prosecute a misdemeanor, people are much less likely to return to court after committing crimes. So it that like the headline is, if you don't prosecute misdemeanors, it reduces recidivism. It is great for everybody. It saves everybody money. It saves the time, effort, and misery of court. And at the end of the day, 25% of misdemeanors in the end are ever really get resolved anyway. So 75% lag on for six months, ruin everybody's life. You drag everybody through the system. And in the end, nothing happens. So you know what? Let's get rid of those six months and let's just dismiss it at the beginning, not ruin people's lives, not drag them through the system. And that helps people. So it's uh, yeah, it was a great study really showing that if you don't prosecute, it's helpful to everyone. You know, I thought that was like so cool. But at first, people that weren't in the know were like all up in arms about it. Like, oh, my God, she's going to let these things slide. But you know what? In spite of that, she still got voted in. She made Absolutely. it. Well, no, I think a lot of people were craving that kind of strength. You know, I think under Conley's DAs, they did this. They sort of picked 
picked and chose like who they were going to prosecute and who they weren't because it wasn't a policy. And that's what Suffolk County needed. They needed a policy saying this actually works. So we're going to institute it as a policy. Um, and I think that was actually very attractive to people. You know, I just want to just jump in here and say we're talking about Suffolk County, which is encompasses the city of Boston for people don't don't live locally. And it's also Winthrop, Revere and Chelsea. Yes. So just so people know, this was for Boston. This was like a big deal. This I mean, all DAs are a big deal. But you know what's to me astounding? And I don't mean this as a bad thing to anybody, but how many people I speak with that don't even know what the DA does, doesn't know it's an elected position. How, what a powerful and important thing that is. What a position. Did you find that as well? Lay people sometimes are like, huh? What? They don't even know who the DA is. Yes, I think I think that's changing. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that people don't understand it. And even people who understand it don't necessarily understand the power. I think I personally think the DA is the most powerful position in county government. I think you have more power than the mayor has. Right. I mean, I think this is where you can be you know, in a seat of power where you have such an ability to change things um, and to do it in a, you know, a smart way, but you basically don't have a boss, right? And the people who've elected you, you have to, you have to be accountable to them, but you don't have to be accountable to like, quote unquote, government. And so it is, it's an incredibly powerful position and, you know, really important. And Suffolk County, Boston hadn't had anybody but a white male prior politician ever. And so this is the first woman, the first person of color, um, and the first, I think possibly the first person who hadn't held office before. So it was really quite something to get her voted in. You know what I thought was kind of funny? Like I was in a restaurant right before the lockdown and who do I bump into but Dan Conley. And oh. he's no longer in that position as DA. His whole demeanor was different. He was funny. He didn't have that pensive look on his face. He was relaxed. He was cordial. Not that he was a jerk before, but I'd see him. You know, he'd always come in and sit in the back of the courtroom and he'd watch these murder cases I'd be on. He, it's just like the weight of like a million pounds was off his shoulder. He was so different. And I was like, no. maybe it was time for him. Listen, nobody should have any elected position for 16 years, right? I mean, you, there's just no way to keep it fresh, to actually see it you know, from a different perspective. And so I'm sure that's true. I have to say, I mean, not that I agreed with many of his policies or how he ran his office, but listen, the guy was always charming. Um, that's why he was elected, right? Not, I mean, sure, for lots of other reasons too, but you know, being charming and nice and all of that, I don't think was ever really his problem. Yeah, but I just thought it was so different. His whole his whole being was just like, ah, I can yeah, breathe yeah. now. Because, you I know, let's face it, you're in a goldfish bowl. Every you know, you're when you're in that position, you have you have so many people counting on you and whatever you do, some other facet's going to get mad. But can you just put in a nutshell for the lay person that's listening what the D.A. actually does? Sure. So the D.A is in charge of all criminal prosecutions in a county and so decides you know who to charge what to charge when to charge and also what their policies are on bail what their policies are in holding people before their case is resolved 
and also decides what, which cases will be dismissed and ultimately decides what the resolution will be, whether it will be by a plea and offer somebody however much time or whatever the deal would be um, or try the case. And then, of course, after a case is tried, they then have a lot of power in asking the judge for a stiff sentence. So the DA is, again, all powerful with every single criminal prosecution that is a state based crime in a county. It's a big deal. It's a big it deal. Is a, it is a it is a a very big deal. And I think in Suffolk County, they have, you know, over 100 DAs yeah. um, in, you know, many different courts. As, as we said, there's like four different cities that are involved in Suffolk County. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a big deal. You can change the face of, you know, who we're going to prosecute. Are we going to prosecute people for trespassing and using drugs and, you know, smaller uh, crimes, or are we really going to concentrate on the bigger crimes, the violent crimes, and that's where you really want to put your time and effort. And that seems to be what Rollins has done. You know, that brings me to another question. And I, I see that there is a move to decriminalize people that are caught with like small amounts of drugs. Like these people are addicted and it's, it's hell on earth for them. And you know what? I'm all for it. I'm all for it because they need help. I'm not talking about the big drug dealer. I'm talking about the poor guy that's addicted, that's got some in his pocket. What are your, what are your feelings on that as well? No, I completely agree. I mean, we are not, you know, we're not getting anything by spending the time and the money to prosecute a low level, like either drug user or drug dealer, if you're dealing for your own habit. Exactly. Um, because we're not getting to the core of the problem, right? So if there's there's lots of different programs now, like there are some that are even led by the police, where if the police find somebody with a small amount of drugs or selling a small amount of drugs, instead of bringing them in and booking them, they can literally just take them to a treatment center. And you don't have to do anything at the treatment center, but you're at least putting somebody in a position where they now know where the treatment center is. Maybe they've spoken to somebody. So at a point later down the line, if they decide, hey, I want to try to get clean, they know where to go, right? So let's give people things that will make them stronger. But when we prosecute them and they have to go to 10 different court dates and they're facing jail and or they go to jail, we're simply just like destroying them. And that's not helpful to anybody. It's not going to make them less likely to commit crime. It's going to put them further down into the hole that likely is going to make it more likely for them to commit crime. So let's just start being smart about it all. You know, Shannon, when I go by like MCI Cedar Junction in Walpole or Shirley Baronout, I see this sign, Correctional Institute. Yeah. My foot, they're not, they're not rehabilitating these people. They're not. And that's what another reason why I track you down, because as long as I've sat in that courtroom for 30 years, a fly on the wall, I just sat there, I had no opinion, you know. I always said to myself, how is it society is failing these people? They're grown men, they're dysfunctional. They are in a world of trouble, a world of hurt. And I remember bumping into you. I didn't see you with the court anymore. And then you disappeared. And then you went over to the Kennedy School, you told me, which I don't know what you did over there, but you did something good, which is part of Harvard, FYI. And then you, I ran into you and you told me you were over in Chelsea, Mass. at a program called ROCA. And I looked it up. And I was like, wow, how did I not even know this existed in the world? What is this awesome thing, Roka? And why don't we have more Rokas? Why isn't it a house that we, can you explain, first of all, is that an acronym for something? 
It's not. It means rock in Spanish. Ah. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm not there anymore, but I was. I know, but you were, and yeah, yeah. But I was, tell us. I was, there for, I was there for four years. I ran the site in Chelsea and the site in Boston when we replicated in Boston. So, okay, so what is Roca? Roca is a nonprofit. Um, it started a, more than 30 years ago, and it was sort of everything. It was like, you know, kids could come there after school. It would deal with people who were like deeply involved with gangs. It would, you know, they had dance classes. You know, it was sort of something for everyone. And Molly Baldwin, who's the CEO, is this, you know, just visionary. And she said, you know, over a decade ago, like, what are we really doing here, right? Let's just take a pause and determine what does the world need the most? And, and what does it have? And, and so what does the world need the most and where doesn't it exist, right? And so she finally decided that what the world needs the most is a program for people who everybody else has given up on, right? So ROCA is for young men, 17 to 25, or young moms who have basically blown out of all other programs, right? So these are um, young adults who have suffered a lot of trauma, um, who are engaged in the criminal justice system usually, um, who typically have not been able to graduate from high school, um, can't keep a job, right? And all for very good reasons. And so typically what happens is, you know, they go to a program and they don't do exactly what the program wants until they get kicked out. And ROCA is a place that doesn't kick people out. It says, listen, we are here for you and we are going to serve you through the good and the bad. And we are going to understand that failure is part of recovery, right? So if you're trying to change, if you're trying to get out of a life of crime, then you are, it's not going to be a straight line. It's not going to be like, oh, I've decided that I'm not going to commit crime anymore. I'm not getting involved in the, in the system anymore. And all of a sudden say, okay, I'm better now. Instead, it's a, it's a long winding road. And I would you know, assume that any of your listeners who have tried to change something, they've never done it without failing. Um, and, but we, for some reason, society expects young adults who've been involved in the criminal justice system to change like that and never fail. It's just, it's unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's what ROCA is. ROCA is a place that builds failure in to the change process and sticks with people because that's what we all need when we fail, right? We don't need to be punished and thrown into a dark cell. We need somebody to pick us up and in a pro-social way say, oh, what happened here? How do we learn from it? What's our next step? We believe in you, right? Just like most of our parents did for us. You know what? To me, it's hope. It's hope. And you know what? That website, I would implore anyone to go on it. The name of it, to repeat, is ROCA, R-O-C-A. And it's fascinating. And I just, I have a quote from that website, and I'd like to share it because I just think it's so cool. And this is a quote from ROCA. No person is a lost cause to ROCA, even if they have lost all trust and hope for the future. Roca moves the needle on urban violence by relentlessly finding and focusing on the traumatized 16 to 24 year olds living at the center of it. We never give up. Young people can count on us to keep showing up even when they fall. That's how we build trust over time to give young people the tools and support to change the trajectory of their lives. That's beautiful. 
Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, awesome. It is. And you know, it's, I, when I was, we know each other because I was a defense attorney. Right. Um, and I really felt that way about all of my clients, right? Even even people who were charged with heinous crimes, I didn't see them as you know a person in the middle of committing a crime. I saw them as a person who I really cared about, you know, in the end. And I got to know and I saw value in. I saw value in every single person I ever defended, um, and a lot of value. And so that's really why I decided to leave, you know, the law and being a public defender and go to Roca so that you know, I could hopefully be part of helping somebody before the big case happens, right? Before they're looking at 10, 20 years right. in jail. Right. And that's what, that's why Roca is so smart, right? We can put our time and money into, you know, prosecutors have to do this, prosecuting like, you know, the more serious cases. But as a society, we should be putting our time and money into people before that happens to avoid that. And in the end, that's really what Roca is. Roca is you know, there to disrupt the cycle of poverty and incarceration. And both are just incredibly giant challenges for these young adults. And they need an entire team behind them to help them navigate that. But it, it's like intervention before it's too late. And, you know, from what I understand, can you speak to the recidivism rates? They drop like they plummet when these kids go into that's what's so awesome. It's so successful. It is. And that's the other different part of ROCA, right, is that it's data-driven. And so there are lots of nonprofits who are doing great work, but it's hard to figure out how to measure your effect, right? What's really your impact? And ROCA has been doing this for, you know, now everybody is saying, oh, data-driven, data-driven. They've been doing it, you know, for well over, you know, 10, 15 years. And so what we know is that it's a voluntary program. The people who start the program We keep about, again, it's been a while since I've been there, but I want to say 80%, right? We retain 80% of people. um, And of that, after two years, somewhere in the line of 75 to 80% don't have any new criminal offense. That's fabulous. It's fabulous because, you know, the recidivism rate, depending on like what age group you're looking at can be 40%, 50%, 60%. But Roca is the opposite, right? Roca is saying that, well over half of our young people are not returning to court. And that's what that's the name of the game. What do you think about that, Jordan? I'm listening and not wanting to interrupt you, too, because you have such a great flow. But no, I think uh, (laughs) whenever there's a practical approach that works, uh, we need to herald it. And it seems as though in political circles and uh, in government circles, we we tend to just spin our wheels. This is a real program with success, as Diane pointed out, and uh, you you deserve a lot of respect and admiration for being part of it. What is the future of an organization like this, and who funds them? How do they get how do they get the fuel to keep going? Both good questions. Roca started in Chelsea. It then replicated in Boston. It's also in Springfield. Um, has a very big program in Springfield, and recently replicated in Baltimore. So I don't know what their plans are as far as more as far as more replication. Um, when we began, Diane, you said, you know, why don't they exist everywhere? And I don't think they don't exist everywhere because it's really hard work, right? You have to have, you know, really like the city government on your side. You need to have a, a clear, good relationship with police. Um, you need to have a good relationship with the court so they understand what you're doing. You need to have a great relationship with other community organizations who are going to refer 
uh, young adults to you. And so it's, it's tough. And then the work itself is really, it's tough. It's messy. You know, uh, young men, you know, would, they blow out a lot, right? They have, uh, they'll have a fit, right? So for example, when we would, when it was payday, because we also, we had contracts with cities and counties where our young people would go out on a crew because like sort of to learn how to work, to show up, to put on a uniform, to get a paycheck. Um, and they would, they would go out and, you know, do landscaping or snow removal. And on payday, you know, we would say to them, okay, taxes are going to be taken out of your paycheck. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We're like, no, like really, like taxes are going to be taken out. And I have to explain what that means, right? Because why would you know if you've never had a paycheck? And then payday comes and everybody opens up their paycheck and they, they think they've calculated in their mind what they're going to get, even though we've told them taxes are going to be taken out. It's such a foreign concept that everybody's just like screaming and yelling and we'd have to have like extra staff there, right? Because again, this is why it's hard to figure, like to actually get into mainstream society and the workforce because there's all these unexpected things. And that again is why Roca is so brilliant because it's it's built to like take that mm. blowback that you get um, and expect it so that people can actually learn. Um, but to get to the funding part, so I don't know exactly where their funding is coming from now. It comes from a lot of different foundations like the Arnold Foundation. Um, but also there's something called a social impact bond. So there are a lot of investors in the stock market who, you know, people want to get a return on their money. So they will invest in companies. Well, there's a lot of people who want a return on their money, but they also want a return of social impact. They want to be able to say like, I've invested in something that is doing good. And so an organization that started at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, um, and a lot of other organizations, uh, third sector capital and others came together and said, we're going to create a fund people are going to invest in. And if we make our numbers that we say, we say we have this impact and that we're reducing recidivism. If we make the numbers, then there's a return on the investment to the investors. If we don't make our numbers, nobody, nobody gets a return on their investment. So it's a way of like sort of everybody putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been very successful. I don't know what the ultimate results were because I've been gone since then, but like there are investors out there who said, we, we want to invest in this, but the only way you attract those investors is if you actually have the data from before to, to prove that you're effective. It's just like looking at a stock, right? You want to see that a stock has been going up. Well, when people invest in a social impact bond, they want to see that the organization actually has proven social impact. You're listening to All Rise. At the Horse Thieves Tavern in Dedham, Massachusetts, just south of Boston, you're invited to stop by, enjoy delicious food and drink, and socialize. Now there's a concept. Horse Thieves Tavern is a modern take on a traditional New England tavern located in historic Dedham Square, a place where locals and travelers can mix in a warm and inviting atmosphere, serving terrific hearty and healthy regional food and drinks with an awesome takeout menu and live entertainment. It's the Horse Thieves Tavern at 585 High Street, Dedham Square, Massachusetts. For more, visit horsethievestavern.com. Stop by anytime. The Horse Thieves Tavern. There's nothing like the aroma and taste of a freshly cut cigar. And having a friendly cigar store owner in your neighborhood, now that's a real treat. 
For those cigar aficionados in the Boston area, you may already know of Courthouse Cigars, but if you're just hearing about it for the first time, you will light up when you discover the variety of tobacco and cigars at Courthouse Cigars, 366 Washington Street in the heart of Dedham, Massachusetts. They carry a full line of aromatic cigars for any occasion to fit any budget, and it's the place to get that smoker on your list the perfect gift. Visit Courthouse Cigars at 366 Washington Street in Dedham, just south of Boston. For directions, hours, and more, call 781-326-2400. That's 781-326-2400. You're listening to All Rise. You know what's funny how you just retain things? Like, this was a long time ago, but you were in the courtroom, and you were there for a plea, and you were standing at defense table with your um, the person you were you know, representing and the plea was going to begin. And I never forgot this. I remember you taught, like said something to him and you took your hand and you placed it on his shoulder in like a reassuring way. And when I looked at you, I said, you know what? She's for real. Like she means it. She's not just here for the money. Like Shannon's all in. When I saw that dedication, the way you looked at it, I never forgot that, Shannon, because I don't see that in the courtroom. I don't. Oh, thank Half you. Half the time well, they're answering the call. They come in on two wheel. Yeah, you're on a, you know, guilty by, you know, see you. Day. But you were so different. And I, I never forgot that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, you know, I think a lot of public defenders, especially people who work for CPCS, have that same perspective as I do. Like, you know, I think lots of defense attorneys care a lot about their clients. Sometimes you do get too busy and and it's hard to show it. But once during a trial, it was a a rape trial and my guy was found not guilty. And I I do not think he was guilty. Um, And the judge, this is like, you know, in the nineties called me in and said, uh, stop touching your client. Like stop touching his back. Stop talking to him, you know, during the, during it. And I said, what what do you mean? And she said, no one buys this, that you're trying to pretend that you like him, Shannon. And I said, what do you mean by it? Like I'm having a, I have a relationship with him and he's on trial for his life because this prosecutor charged him with the crime that they never should have charged him with. And she said, oh, well, we'll see about that. She did not like me. So the jury came back, not guilty. And um, before I left, she said, uh, Shannon, we're going to go talk to the jury, which in Massachusetts, you're not really allowed to unless the judge lets you talk to the jury. So we went in and she asked some questions. She was not very nice. And she said, uh, hey, what did you all think about uh, attorney McAuliffe uh, touching her client or, you know, talking to him? What did you think of that? And they all said, we thought that, you know, she had become so close with him because he was charged with the crime that he didn't do. I And one of them even said, you know, I thought at first she was a public defender. Oh, whatever. But then when I saw how much she cared about him, I realized that, like, she wasn't just doing this because she couldn't do something else. Like she was doing this because she really believed in him. And so the judge sort of looked at me. and I said, OK, thanks, judge. Bye bye. OK, I have a follow up uh, for those who are sure. listening. Uh, we don't want to run through the uh, the process without explaining what CPCS stands or stood for and a little bit of background on, you know, the whole idea of public defense. Sure. So CPCS is the Committee for Public Counsel Services in Massachusetts. It's just it's what we call the public defender. And public defenders are I think a lot of people have heard of them, uh, but they are people who are appointed to defendants who are indigent and can't pay for their own criminal defense. So 
there is so like one school of thought is that, you know, public defenders um, aren't good because they're quote unquote free. And um, there are all some contraire. I mean, I think this is sort of the, the rap that some of them that some people think of when they think of a public defender. Um, but I think, you know, there are a lot of states with fantastic public defenders and Massachusetts is one of them. Absolutely. The defender, yeah. I mean, the public defenders who are on staff in Massachusetts are people who are incredibly vetted. It's very hard to get a job there. Um, and the people who last are the people, you know, who I think are incredibly dedicated to it. So in Massachusetts, it's a little bit more, it's, it's the opposite. It's that, you know, oftentimes they're seen as like the very best lawyers in the courts, um, which, well, there's lots of great lawyers who aren't public defenders, but that was, that's what a public defender is. That's great. You know, can, can I just inquire what you're up to now these days, work-wise? Sure. So I am a vice president at a behavioral design and consulting firm called Ideas 42. So it's, it's interesting. I, I wanted to change the system, you know, sort of one defendant at, at a time when I was a public defender. And then I went to the Kennedy School and I went to ROCA and I said, like, maybe I can help change the system by getting to like people earlier and trying to explain, you know, this you know, entire, like this approach to judges to say, hey, don't put this person in jail, give them to ROCA, right? Because we can try to help people change much better than jail can. Um, and so now I'm at a firm that we actually use behavioral science. So the science of like why people do what they do to try to improve the system. So a lot of times we think that if we tell people to do something, they're going to do it. But of course that's not true, right? Like we all know we shouldn't eat cake and cookies and we all do. Uh, we shouldn't smoke, we shouldn't drink, you know, all of these things. And so it's the same in the system, right? You can tell somebody to go to court, but there are all of these reasons and all of these things that get in the way of going to court. And so one of our, our bigger projects was in New York City, where people weren't showing up to court when they would get a ticket and have to go to court. And so we went in and we interviewed lots of defendants and said, like, what's going on? How come you're not going to court? Because judges think, well, Diane, what do judges think when people don't go to court? What do they that, think? That they're arrogant and don't care and they're bucking the system. But that isn't the reality most times. No, but that is what a lot of judges think, right? Yep. And we've all been, we've, we've both been in the courtroom where somebody comes in and a judge just punishes them. Absolutely. You didn't show up. I'm sitting here. You're wasting my time. You're late. Or, or the people who are late. Oh, God. Um, the way that judges can oftentimes treat people who are late is incredible. Well, what we found is that people aren't showing up, especially who, you know, have low incomes or experiencing something we call scarcity. So just like a lack of lots of resources because their cognitive bandwidth is captured by their lack of resource, right? So you only have so much brain power. And if you're thinking about, if you're addicted, if you're thinking about that, if you have instability in your housing, then you're thinking about that. If your kids are sick, you know, whatever it is, that actually depletes the bandwidth you have to be like, I need to go to court. And I have to say, I was guilty of this. When I was a defense attorney and somebody was, you know, late or didn't show up, I'd be like, what do you, how can you forget that you have a court date? But what I didn't really understand is the psychology that's going on is that it's actually very easy to forget about a court date when you have more pressing needs in the moment, right? In the immediate moment. So knowing that we looked at the forms that told people to come to court, but the forms were really designed for the police officer who was giving the ticket, 
right? Just like the forms, you know this, Diane, forms in courts. I mean, they're really like written, what, like the 1800s, right? They're not, I mean, right, but they're, they're, not, they're not meant for the defendant. They're meant for the clerk. They're yeah. meant for, you know, and so how do you actually design something for the person who's reading it? So we redesigned it in a way that made it very clear this was for a court date and made it very clear that if they didn't show up, they'd be arrested and then offered them help. If you have any questions, call this number. And so by just doing that, we increased people showing up to court um, dramatically and decreased warrants and failures to appear by about 26%. Um, and then we just sent text messages and that decreased failures to appear by another 10%. So again, there are these little tweaks you make to people's surroundings that can change how they behave. And so that's what I do now. You know, Shannon, also when witnesses are summoned, I, if I hit a nickel for every time in that courtroom, we have to get a police cruiser to get in the car and go wherever and summon someone out of their house and bring them in to testify. I mean, it's a big deal to, hey, it was a big deal to even get jurors to show up at one point, you know? So, Absol right, absolutely. And so how do you, I mean, and there are dramatic consequences if you don't show up. Um, and so with, a, you know, there, there could be other things going on with them, but let's just figure out how, again, we change the context so we get the result we want, as opposed to assuming that just by telling people to do things, they're going to do them. That's all good stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's reality. And, you know, it's for me and you, like, we have a car. We, it's not hard for us to get out of bed and get, but a lot of people can't. And you know what? I still in Massachusetts, I, I can't get my mind around this, how they move the Middlesex court to Woolburn on the side of a highway. Are you kidding me? There's no public transportation. And Middlesex could, is an enormous count. I mean, how did they do that? I know I could barely find it, frankly. I mean, it was just, you know, it was difficult. No, I mean, I agree. And there's, there's lots of things. How do you help people show up to probation? How do you improve probation, right? So we're doing all of these, you know, different projects to try to enhance the system, but at a, at a much higher level than I've done before. Shannon, is there anything you'd like to share, like some success story that really stands out in your mind, like some kid that really turned it around for the better? There, there is, there is one. Um, there was a young man who had a, you know, just brutal heroin addiction, and I went to court to get him committed, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done because my entire career was based on keeping people out of custody, not putting them in custody. Right. I really thought he was going to die. And I wrote him a letter during it. And he was apparently like really pissed at the time. And then he got out, uh, I think in 30 days and he came to see me and he hugged me and he quoted like what I had written in the letter to him. And he said, just like, thank you. I didn't see it at that time, but thank you so much for caring. And, you know, and for like really saving my life. And now he's like he's clean, he has a job, he has a wife, he has a kid, and he stumbled along the way. He didn't just get out of treatment and it was fine. But, you know, this was a kid that I couldn't imagine him getting out of this dark place. And through like a lot of tiny mini steps and him just like trying and trying over again and getting up after he stumbled and getting up and having people around him to support him, you know, he's, he's made it so far. And so there are lots of stories like that. It must give you such a good, it's so rewarding when something like that happens. It is. And, you know, it's, 
it's actually like kind of selfish, you know? I mean, I think people think, oh, like, oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. I mean, listen, I, I do it because it's it it gives me hope. It makes me sure. feel good, right? Um, and it also puts some good out in there into the world. But yeah, I mean, this is this is fuel. This is what life is about. If we can just save, you know, my heart breaks for those older middle-aged men, you know, men that start hitting 40, 50, and they're up against it, standing in front of the judge with all these like life felonies and they're rattling off the, and I'm like, how did this happen? Like to get to this point. So if we can intervene and, and get them while they're young, it's, it's really terrific. So no, I, I, I totally agree. I also think that it would be great if there's a ROCA for people who are like 45, right? It would be a different type of model, but you know, I think people need serious intervention at all points in their lives. And it's just, it's really hard to determine like when and where and how that can be funded. But well, thank you so much. But before we sign off, I have to ask you the most important question of the whole day. Okay. <laughs> how do you feel about the ladies of the 27th disbanding? <laughs> <laughs> I was an honorary member twice. I felt so happy when I got invited. I know it was, that was such a great time, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Patricia's uh, up. Hi, Patricia. If you're listening, she's up in Vermont now. She is. She has like her own, you know, she, she built this whole house up there, but yeah, now listen, I've, I've been the benefactor of many amazing, strong women uh, throughout my entire life, which is just, you know, really given me like the strength and the drive to do a lot of the things that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. For anyone that's listening, it was a joke because Shannon and I used to live in the same complex in Boston and you guys lived in the other building on the 27th floor and you had like this, not society, but like this woman's group and you did cool things. And I only knew that because my friend Patricia lived on the 27th floor and she kind of <laughs> would a couple of times would like extend the invitation to me and it was it was really fun. Yeah, they were like book clubs that weren't really book clubs and, you know, all of these other funny things. But no, they were good times. Just like the alcohol came out and the hors d'oeuvres and it was like, that was good enough. Of course, of course. (laughs) So I guess that's it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Um, I I really appreciate what you're doing here. And um, if anybody has any questions about ROCA, the website is rocainc.org and the behavioral science firm I work for is called Ideas42, and they're at ideas42.org. Um, and lots of really cool international, national projects using behavioral science to really create and improve social impact. So take a look. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on, Shannon. Thank you, Diane. It was a pleasure, as always, as every single time I see you, I just um, I leave with a huge smile on my face. And happy spring. Thank you. You too. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.